I hope I don't put too fine a point on it here, but I think when we're afraid to express our sincere, genuinely held beliefs, we all get dumber. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. Today on the Christ and Culture podcast, we'll talk with Keith Simon about his new book, Truth Over Tribe. After that, we'll have another edition of our segment, On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about ChatGPT. ChatGPT has taken the world by storm. This new artificial intelligence has the ability to answer questions, write something based on a prompt, and much, much more. Dr. Keithley, what is so unique about this particular form of AI, and is it concerning? Should it be concerning to us? Well, I may be a little more sanguine than some are about uh, ChatGPT, but I understand their concerns. Nathaniel, many, many years ago, before you were born, when I was a teenage boy, I worked at my uncle's um, gas station. And is there a point to this story? Does this connect somehow? Th- it's going to meander okay. around, All but right. we're gonna, it, okay. there, it is going to tie in. Okay. Uh, back then, it was full service. When someone pulled up to the gas pump, I went out. I put gas in their pump. I washed their windshield, checked their oil, it was, it, and then I took their money and went to the cash register and then paid. All of that is gone today because today it is automated and people don't think a thing about it to pull up, put in their credit card, pump their own gas and get it done. Now, <clears throat> if we'd have said at that time, my goodness, whenever we automate uh, to where you can get gas, uh, that's going to eliminate hundreds of thousands of jobs for teenage boys who work in the summer. Uh, You know, this is their job or after school. And that would have been true. Uh, You know, so the downside is that we lost all of those jobs Mm -hmm. uh, through uh, a weak form of artificial intelligence. On the other hand, now you can get gas at 11 o'clock at night if you need to, and you because otherwise it used to be if the gas station was closed, you were just out of luck. Right. I can go down the list of a number of things in which over the decades uh, some version of artificial intelligence has made our lives different and for the most part better. My aunt used to be a telephone operator uh, and we don't have, though though there are times whenever I get tired of press two and then I think, you know, I'd like to press zero so I could talk to a real human being. Uh, We all understand that. Travel agents used to be whenever I was a young man traveling, um, you had to call a travel agent. Well, now you get on the app, whether it's your Delta app or your Southwest Airlines app. And so there has been for decades um, the use of what we call weak AI uh, that has been involved in our lives more and more. And so there's not a person listening to this podcast who's not uh, engaged with some type of AI on a daily basis. Now, that's what's known as weak AI. Uh, Why is it called weak AI? Because 
it's pretty stupid. In other words, it is able to do a job, whether it's uh, an ATM machine or something of that matter, uh, and and it's therefore able to uh, take your order at a at a at a, a, a fast food place or something of that nature. Um, it is able to do a job that is repetitive, uh, and it eliminates the, uh, the the need to have a human being doing something that's pretty boring and repetitious. So we don't really feel all that bad about uh, what we call weak AI. Now, strong AI is something that is yet to be invented. And what is strong AI? Something that's sort of like the Skynet scenario and the Terminator movies in which that, that uh, artificial intelligence is sentient, it is self-aware, it is able to think in a way that is creative, original, and move beyond. And um, that's something that we've yet to see happen. In fact, we, we, we really don't know how to do that. You know, there's, there's been uh, conversations about um, wh- whether or not strong AI will ever arrive at what we'd call consciousness. That's we had a conversation earlier in the season about that yeah. with Dolores Morris. Yeah, and, and the simple fact is, is that uh, if, we don't even know what consciousness is. So how can, we, how can we invent something we don't know what it is? So... Um, what ChatGPT does uh, is that it is a step in that direction in the sense that it seems to be able to do something that's creative, something that may even be original. Uh, one of the more interesting things that I've seen AI do uh, recently is not just simply some of the articles that, uh, that it's able to write or blog posts or essays, um, some of the artwork. Um, yeah, I've seen artwork would say uh, do uh, do paintings based on uh, songs by Led Zeppelin or or something of that nature, and some of it is quite remarkable. You look at it and think, my goodness, um, that that seems compelling. All right, that has our attention, uh, and because now we're at the point where um, is this strong AI? No, it's not. It's still just simply taking, uh, it's got this enormous resource called the internet, and it's taking just this voluminous amount of material, uh, able to, to compile it together and come up with something that looks pretty, pretty good to us. But is it able to do something that we would say it is thinking on its own? And, and the answer is no. It's, it's still not doing that. What has people concerned about uh, ChatGPT um, is, is a couple of things. One, for uh, the teacher. Right. This is what I was going to ask you, actually. As a, pro- as a professor yeah. who, who assigns papers to people, yeah. uh, how is this going to affect you in your, in your teaching? Yeah, I've looked at some of the papers that ChatGPT is able to, to put together. And it is able to write uh, something that would, would do very well for a freshman intro class. So if we were asking, this is something I'm, I'm, you know, we're going to have to work through, you know, a theological integration paper on the Council of Nicaea, you tell ChatGPT to come up with it, and it will do it. It will come up with a 3,000-word uh, essay with the push of a button. And then it, you know, doggone it, to make it even more difficult to discern what's going on. Uh, in fact, one of the ways I might figure out that somebody has used ChatGPT is because it's too good. Um, <laughs> you say, okay, write it uh, in the voice of, of Thomas Aquinas. In fact, this, uh, 
just before we come here to do the podcast, I was looking through a Twitter feed where someone asked ChatGPT to write a praise chorus that could be sung either to Jesus or to your boyfriend. <laughs> and, of course, it wrote something. And when it gets done, you think, yeah, that's actually better than a lot of stuff I hear uh, sung on Sunday morning. And then the guy said, well, here, I'll do you one better. And the next person said, uh, write a hymn in the voice of Thomas Aquinas. And, you know, I've read enough of Aquinas. To, 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 this is a pretty Thomistic hymn. Uh, it, it, and so this is going to be something that's going to be a challenge to us as school teachers, uh, those of us who assign, um, those of us in the humanities area, I don't think this is going to help students who are um, doing calculus 101 because they've still got to sit down and 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 at the at the time the exam exam comes they've got to do the exam by hand, but for those of us who are used to assigning uh, papers to be written outside of class in which we expect them to do good research, obviously now we're going to have to rethink it, and 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 how that works out I'm not quite sure we're we're we're, we're that is a conversation that is ongoing. The other area, besides teachers wondering what to do with it, is uh, are those who are in the, the creative business. And now I'm talking to you. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, because, all right, if something that you do is uh, you write blog posts about, well, let me ask you, what are some of the blog posts that you would like to write uh, between now and the end of this season? So one of the ones uh, that I'm working on, at least mentally, have not put pen to paper yet, is on unseen work and particularly my experience working as a janitor and uh, how God um, used that time as a janitor to refine me and how even the work of, of cleaning toilets is glorifying to God. So that's one particular article if I want to If you were write. to write that to ChatGPT, in fact, I would just encourage you, or somebody who's <laughs> listening, type that into ChatGPT. Those who are listening, please don't ch- type it into ChatGPT. Yeah, it'd probably be better than what I'm going to write. Yeah, so how many words would you want it to be? Uh, eight, 800. You say you tell, tell uh, ChatGPT, write an 800-word uh, essay on unseen work in which the jobs of, of janitors and others who are behind the scenes still glorify God by what they do because the Lord sees. Well, I can promise you with the press of the button, click and, 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 ChatGPT can check for plagiarism to make sure that this essay is unlike anyone else's essay that's ever been on the internet. And then if you tell, okay, now write another one that doesn't match the one you just did, and it can come up with five different essays and take your pick. Well, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, Coming so, for our jobs. Yeah. yeah, well, that's the, you know, for those of us who um, are involved in creative right. types of work, songwriters, artists, um, those who uh, who who writing for whom writing is a part of your livelihood and your vocation, um, we're going to have to figure out how to do this with integrity. My prediction is going to be, it's not going to be um, a and or non a. I don't think it's going to be. Look, uh, I swear on a, a Bible that I have not used any type of AI. I don't think that we can live in that kind of world. Nor do I think we want to just read articles that have been generated by a mindless uh, computer. And let me just say, chat GPT is still mindless. Mm-hmm. There is no consciousness there. Um, so, so what I expect to see 
is and, and what you see in other 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 areas of where uh, weak AI has done this, and that is it's going to be an assistant, it's going to be a help, and I think that um, we do need to think as Christians about the ethics of utilizing this type of of resource. We need to think about the vocational implications of this sort of resource. But I don't think we're going to be able to stand at the ocean with a uh, pitchfork and make the waves go backwards. Mm. I think that we need to recognize that this is a new thing. Sounds like uh, the beginning of a lot of conversations we're going to be having, probably even on this podcast over the years to come, about the implications of this kind of technology. So, Dr. Keeley, thank you for sharing with us. And and, um, again, a listener, if you're listening to this and this is interesting to you, we do encourage you to go back and find our recent episode with Dolores Morris on sort of the same topic. I think you'll find that interesting and enjoyable as well. What is tribalism? Say that with me, tribalism. And how is it affecting you today? Here to discuss tribalism is Keith Simon. Keith is the co-lead teaching pastor at The Crossing, and he's co-host of the podcast Truth Over Tribe. He's also co-author of the new book, Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. Keith, thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I really am looking forward to having this conversation with you guys. Tribalism. What is it? And why is it bad for us? Well, it's funny because somebody pointed out the other day that in our book on tribalism, we didn't really ever define it. And I thought, well, that's because it's our first book. Give us a break. Uh, Tribalism can be good or bad, I think. It's just the way we are created as human beings. Now, when we use tribalism in our conversation today, usually we mean it in the bad way. But think about a tribe is people who share things in common. Maybe you share gardening in common and you're part of this gardening tribe that learns more about it. Or maybe you are part of the uh, tribe of fans that roots for the St. Louis Cardinals. And Amen. Amen. All right. Yes. Yes. That is the tribe. God's tribe. Yeah. Uh, if God had a baseball team, it'd be the Cardinals, I think. So you maybe you're a part of that and you cheer them on and, and you connect with other fans around your team. But when we use tribalism today and the way we use it in our book is we mean political tribalism. And that's a little bit different because political tribalism are people who are coalescing around a set of ideas, but what they're trying to do is enact those ideas, get those policies, get their politicians into positions of power. And unfortunately, what happens is that we begin to have a kind of an us versus them mindset. And in order for us to win, somebody else has to lose. And tribalism runs the risk of promoting self-righteousness. We're good and they're bad. It runs the risk of demonizing other people, of labeling other people, caricaturing them, and uh, kind of being unfair towards them. So I think in our modern context, tribalism is something that keeps us isolated from people who disagree with us. And as Christians, I think it can be pretty bad when our politics keeps us from building relationships and loving our neighbor who vote differently than us, who think differently than us about cultural issues. So if I'm hearing you right, and I think you're saying something very important here. I mean, historically, we've had political parties, um, 
uh, and for the last, I guess, 150 years or so, uh, the two main parties have been the GOP and the Democratic Party. There have been times when party differences caused all kinds of conflict. Obvious one uh, example, of course, is uh, the war between the states. So when does it become a mere political allegiance? In other words, um, we go to, to the poll to vote in a particular way because a party has an agenda that we agree with more about maybe, maybe ethical values, maybe tax policy, whatever it is. When does simple disagreement about politics evolve into what you're calling tribalism? I mean, what's the difference between what you'd say normal disagreement versus something that you'd say is spiritually damaging? Well, let me tell you a story uh, about um, how I am a recovering tribalist. So it's 1992, and the Republicans are getting ready to take the House, the National House of Representatives for the first time, and I think it was 40 years. I remember that. You remember that? Well, Dick Gephardt was was the House Speaker, the the representative from Missouri. And this was a Newt Gingrich contract with America. And uh, I was following it. I've grew up in a political household, so I've always followed politics. Uh, I'm sitting out in the backyard of a, of a friend's house. We're watching the election returns come in. The networks call it for the Republicans. And I run around the yard with my shirt off, waving it in the air, hooping and hollering. Um, now, that sounds silly, right? And of course, I was, to some extent, just having fun. But in another sense, I really thought that what was wrong with America is we had the wrong people in power. And if we could just get the right politicians in the right positions in government, then everything would be better. But what I've learned since then is that uh, the kingdom only comes with the king, that the kingdom of God isn't going to come with a political election. And so I think tribalism, one way tribalism goes wrong in our life is when we begin to think that our political candidate can bring in God's kingdom or our political candidate gets the loyalty that we should be giving only to Jesus. So I think sometimes we think if we can get our candidate to win, then things will be better. So now I can do whatever it takes to get my candidate to win. In other words, I can leave the fruit of the spirit at the door. And I can play political hardball in order to get my candidate there because I've got good intentions. I really want this candidate to get there because let's say they're pro-life. So I don't really, I can act unchristianly in order to accomplish my Christian objectives. I, I think that's when tribalism goes askew, goes astray, goes wrong. And instead of just saying, I'm going to be a faithful citizen who casts my vote, prays for my leaders. Now I'm trying to uh, get my politician in there as any means necessary. And and I think there are some Christians who are doing that, who are encouraging us to try to gain political power as if that's what's really wrong with our country is we just don't have the right politician in place. You mentioned pro-life. And I do think that that is one of the elements that has ratcheted everything up to 11 because we are talking uh, I'm, I'm very strongly pro-life myself. So mm-hmm. we're talking about um, human lives being saved or being taken uh, a- as a result of, of, of our votes and who is in office. I can hear someone listening, or the response of someone listening to our podcast and say, hey, how can I be moderate about 
human life, particularly innocent human life in, in the womb. How would you respond to someone who says, look, sometimes the issues require a strong response that you may find offensive. How do you answer them? Well, I affirm their pro-life position and yours, and I consider myself as well deeply pro-life. Now, what that means is that I want there to be fewer and fewer abortions, and in a perfect world, no abortions whatsoever. First, I think we've got to play a, a long game. The only way that we are able to eliminate or you know, even greatly reduce the number of abortions is to change laws, yes, but we also have to persuade people. So if we compromise our character, in order to win an election, we might get the law and lose. So we might win the battle and lose the war because we might turn people off to the pro-life movement because we've shown ourselves maybe to be hypocrites or to be unkind and uncharitable. But I would also say this is there's nothing that God needs me to do so much that I can stop acting like Jesus, that I can stop imitating Jesus or loving like Jesus did. So, so we get our head, hey, I need a pro-life president. Well, I'm all for that or a pro-life congressman, whatever. Great. I'm for that too. But that doesn't mean that I get to uh, act unchristianly to do that because God's in control. He's on the throne. He's the one who raises up kings and disposes them. He's the one who's in charge. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. So I, I can trust the king and be faithful. It's not up to me to uh, uh, take this into my hands, my power, and use unchristian means to accomplish God's objective. In your book, you say that tribalism makes you anxious. What did you mean? Yeah, I was just having a conversation with an English professor at Penn State, and she said that she's finding more and more of her students being lonely. I don't know if you guys have seen this recently, but reportedly 61% of young adults say that they're lonely, they don't have friends. And when I was talking to her about this, if it conformed with her experience on campus at Penn State, and she said it did, she said the reason was that a lot of students will tell her that they are scared to say things. Uh, that they believe because they're afraid they will be attacked for them. And so tribalism makes you anxious because when you say something, you might say it wrong. You might say something insensitive. You might use a phrase that's inappropriate. And you're afraid that people are going to jump down your throat, that you're going to be humiliated, uh, maybe even on social media. And it's a big public thing. Uh, so I think part of the anxiety that tribalism causes is a belief that I might say something wrong and therefore the mob, the tribe might come after me. I just got through reading Jonathan um, Haidt's uh, article, Why the Last 10 Years Have Been Uniquely Stupid. Mm. And he talks about the, the fear of being publicly flogged or pilloried on social media, and that this has not just had uh, an effect on individuals. But universities, corporations, churches, institutions, there has been this great fear that one might post a wrong tweet or say something the wrong way. So, in a, so the, the end result is nothing gets said. And as you said, it, it heightens the anxiety. Lord, help us if we say something uh, the wrong way. Uh, and I'm sure that that has uh, impacted you and your podcast to a certain level, just like it has us. We've had to ask ourselves every once in a while, are we captive to that same mindset? And, and it's, a, it's a real, you, you've, you've brought up a real issue. You pinpoint three forms of tribal anxiety, anxiety of the crusaders, 
uh, the hunted and the bystanders. What are these? Uh, what did you What did you mean by those different types of of anxiety? Well, the crusaders are the ones who are doing the attacking. In other words, they see something out there that is wrong. They see someone has said the wrong thing or something that they consider to be unjust. And they are going to go after you to expose you to uh, bring you to justice to call you to account. And so they are anxious because they feel like they are the policeman who needs to kind of be in charge. And like I said, call everybody in count, keep them in line. And then there's the hunted. That's the person we were just discussing, the person who's afraid to say anything because they're afraid that if they say something wrong, they'll be chased down by the mob. And then there's the bystander, the person who hasn't said anything wrong, but is watching as other people get attacked. And they're thinking to themselves, well, I don't want to, to say something wrong. And so what we all learn is to keep to ourselves, to not say anything that could be controversial. And, and you know, I, I hope I don't put too fine a point on it here, but I think when we're afraid to express our sincere, genuinely held beliefs, we all get dumber because we don't learn. Because the way we learn is to interact with other people and to say something that is wrong and then to hear a rebuttal to that or hear another opinion and to revise our opinion. And society gets dumber when we aren't willing to share our beliefs, even our wrong beliefs, because that's the only way you come to truer beliefs. So I think we've created a climate here that is the opposite of what we want. It's not going to make things better. It's going to only make things worse. And this is not just a problem on the right. It's a problem on the left. It depends on what venue you're in, uh, which side you might find yourself uh, being attacked. Uh, so what would be some practical ways to push back against uh, our tendency towards tribalism? Well, I mean, gosh, there's so many. I mean, one, we could look at Jesus who crossed tribes uh, and reached out to the Samaritan woman, even though he wasn't supposed to be talking to Samaritan women, right? Who We could also look at uh, the disciples and learn from them when James and John want to call down fire on the Samaritan village. Think about this for a second. They're headed to Jerusalem. James and John are upset because the Samaritans won't let them stay there. It's all in Luke 9. They say to Jesus, can we call down fire on them? Imagine that. You look at the Prince of Peace and you say, hey, can we napalm these, these people right here? Because what, what, what do they misunderstand? Well, they think that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to defeat the Romans. Instead, he's going to die for the Romans and the Samaritans. So now fast forward, fast forward to after Jesus's resurrection and Samaritans are coming to put their faith in Jesus. And James and John might very well be sitting in a worship service right next to some of the Samaritans that they wanted to kill a few weeks or a few months beforehand. But I think that's the picture of what Jesus is doing. He's bringing together people who naturally might be enemies, but in Christ are our friends, in Christ are our followers of Jesus, and that is greater than their differences. So I think as we get to know people on the other side, we can go, oh, well, it's not that we don't disagree. We do. It's just that these are people made in God's image, that God's love, that Jesus died for, and they have good things about them, and I can learn from them and work with them.
You know, why did James and John want to kill the Samaritans? Well, partly because they didn't know any. You know, they worshiped at different temples. They shopped at different markets. They lived in separate towns. And oftentimes I think, how do we know about the Democrats or the Republicans in our lives, people on the other side, whatever tribe we're not in? And a lot of times it's through social media or cable news, but it's not because we actually know them. I mean, how many Republicans and Democrats, people who are far apart politically, actually break bread together and spend time together and learn about, well, how did you come to those beliefs? Why is it you have different beliefs than I do? And if we did that, if we built those bridges, crossed those tribal lines, I think we would see that that you can be a, a good Christian and be a Democrat, or you can be a good Christian and be a Republican. And it would at least cause us to uh, maybe be uh, quicker to extend grace and slower to call for judgment. Keith, it's, it's okay to be, you can be a good, you know, good Christian and a Democrat, can be a good Christian and a Republican or an independent. Can you be a good Christian and a Yankee fan, though? That's the real question I think we have to address in these no, conversations. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I have to admit that during the playoffs, whenever Harrison Bader or Matt Car Carpenter came up to bat, uh -huh. I was a conflicted man. Here were some of the fellows that I'd rooted for for years, mm -hmm. uh, wearing very strange uniforms, mm -hmm. and they were, and they were opposing uh, the Astros. So it just seemed yeah. like, you know, Lord forgive me, but I think I'm going to root for the Yankees just a little bit tonight, yeah. at least while Matt Carpenter <laughs> is up to bat. God bless him. Keith, I have to say these things every now and then just to give some something for Nathaniel to edit out later, but. Um, I, I love I love the title of the book as much as anything, Truth Over Tribe, because that, that in and of itself really captures not only something we need to be clear about as Christian leaders, pastors and all the rest, but also uh, just captures, I think, a very, a very clear position and truth from the scriptures. I've been preaching through at our church, the minor prophets, and I made a comment a few weeks ago that, you know, because of how our ears have been so culturally tuned to especially certain media outlets that I felt like I could probably read long portions of the prophets and not tell you where I'm, what I'm reading from. And when I stopped, you would look at me and say, what liberal textbook was that? And it's because we've been so attuned by, you know, this media or that media or this podcast or that podcast. And it's all the more reason for our, for the tuning forks that tune our ears to be that of truth and not that of, as you say, tribalism or, you know, partisanship. And those kinds of things. I, most most importantly, just want to want to amen what you're saying uh, with respect to truth over tribe or elephant or donkey or whatever else it may be. Can Can I tell you a story about that? Because here's a I, I just think it's a story that completely uh, affirms what you just said that you're experiencing as you go through the minor prophets. Is after uh, George Floyd's death that now, because he's been convicted by a court and all, we can say he was murdered. We had, like every church did probably, there were, there were people who were maybe upset that we didn't say more as a church and people were upset that we said too much about it as a church. But in the aftermath of that, a, a guy sent me an email and he's a really good guy. Uh, he sent me an email saying, I've noticed some of our prayers are becoming more political at church. And I had no idea what he meant. And I said, well, could you just give me an example? And he said, sure. We're, and this is all through an email dialogue. He said, we're, we're praying about oppression and justice and injustice. And uh, I said, okay, well, I, now I see what you mean. So I sent him to BibleGateway.com. And I said, would you just put oppress and justice in the search bar and tell me uh, what you find? 
And like I said, this is a really good guy. He's sincerely asking these questions. He's not trying to cause problems. So he actually did what I asked him to do. And he searched BibleGateway.com for those words. And he sends me back an email saying, gosh, it's everywhere. And here are some that are especially meaningful to me. And what had happened is that he had come to church and heard prayers that were just from the Bible. And he had interpreted it through the lens of his favorite political pundit. And he saw them as political instead of biblical. Uh, now, I mean, we could say in some sense they, they are political in the sense they're talking about how the world should be rightly ordered, but they're not political in the sense of partisan for Republicans or Democrats or talking about a specific partisan issue that we have today. And, and so I completely agree that we are, as a church, a large American church, interpreting the Bible, interpreting Jesus, interpreting what we're hearing in a worship service through the lens of social media and cable news media, instead of letting Jesus and the biblical authors speak for themselves. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, Charles Spurgeon, the famous British Baptist preacher. He He's the one who famously said, a good preacher should have the Bible in one hand and newspaper in the other. And I think that's still true. We also have to make sure that the Bible comes first and the newspaper comes second when we when we read these things and how we preach these things. And I, I want to ask you this too, Keith, just as a pastor, uh, all of what you're saying with respect to truth over tribe, as true as that is, so oftentimes uh, the most well-meaning Christians will still say, okay, but at the end of the day, who, who should I vote for? Tell me what I need to do. So how do you, right. how do you respond to that without still at the end of the day kind of um, reducing down to a tribe? Well, what I tell people is that we as Christians should take our biblical convictions and our conscience, uh, our worldview into the voting booth, because that's what everybody does. You can't not do that. So don't feel bad about going in there and voting your biblical convictions. What I encourage them not to do is think that every Christian has to uh, see the same way. In other words, every Christian has to vote the same way. Every Christian has to have your same convictions and prioritize them in their voting order, which issues are most important to you in the exact same way that you do. So to give space for other people to vote differently. Now, I don't really so much care about who people vote for. What I do care about is what they expect from that person and whether they are going to write off other Christians. Like when they hear somebody voted for a different candidate than they did, do they doubt that person's faith? Because I think we do. I think, oh, well, they must not be a real Christian because a real Christian would have voted for the person that I did. Uh, I see that happening quite a bit. You know, one of the ways that we've tried to lead our church out of tribalism is that we have uh, tried to, as a as a church, be radically generous toward our community through a couple different campaigns around Christmas and Easter. We've raised four hundred fifty thousand dollars to pay off medical debt for people below a certain income level in thirty eight counties in our state. And we didn't ask, are you black or white or Latino or Hispanic or Asian? We didn't ask what generation you are. We just said, do you have a need? Because we want to help meet that need. Because that's what Jesus did to us. He didn't come and ask us which way we voted. He came and met the need that we have for forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And we did the same thing with utility debt. We found out uh, how many people were on our utility disconnect list, people who were getting ready to have their utilities cut off. And we raised another $450,000 and paid off that list. 
uh, paid off the debt that they owed. And again, we just said, we want to help people with need. And so what happens is, is that our church begins to realize that people who think differently than us, they're not our enemy. They, we would love them. They're a neighbor who we're called to love. And even if they are enemy, guess what? We're called to love them too. And I think that's one way that we've been able to help our church embrace kind of a, a of a bigger tent. Because here's the deal. Jesus has a tribe, but the but Jesus' tribe is unique because his, his tribe is the only tribe in which everybody is invited into. Anybody can come and be a part of Jesus' tribe. And if you are in Jesus' tribe, well, you're called to lay down your life and to sacrifice for the benefit of those who aren't in his tribe. And so we call people to join this more inclusive tribe. It's Jesus' tribe. And together we want to love our neighbor and love our community and show people that Jesus is king. I was about to ask you about spiritual formation, but you have talked a great deal about how we are to follow Christ, even in arenas that involve social media. So talk to us, bring it together. How, how should we approach the whole notion of discipleship and spiritual formation as we are involved in social media? I mean, this is a podcast. Uh, <laughs> we, we, are, we are engaged in social media also. It isn't all bad or else we wouldn't be involved in it ourselves. How can we be careful about being formed spiritually as we engage on social platforms? Yeah, I think it's a great question that people like us and probably every American is involved in social media in some way. And so we should all be asking ourselves and examining our behavior. So I think we start just with the most obvious, and that is that Jesus says out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. And of course, he's not talking about just words that come out of our mouth, but he's also talking about words that we type on our phone and things that we post online or podcasts that we have. These are all words that we give an account for to Jesus. Uh, I think, though, that one of the ways that we're trying to use social media and uh, podcasts and other uh, platforms is we're trying to use it for discipleship. So here's what I tell people, and it sounds a little self-serving because I'm a pastor. And so I, I get, maybe it sounds defensive, but most churches, at least I know it's true of our church. And I think it's probably true of, of the vast majority of Bible believing churches out there, Jesus loving churches, is they have all kinds of programs set up for you to grow in your faith. But what they lack are people who want to invest the time and energy to participate in those programs, you know, between kids, sports and jobs and all the other things that they're just other, other ways to use our time. And we don't use our time reading our Bible and showing up at the discipleship class at church. So what we've tried to do is meet people where they are. So uh, another podcast that we have, that's our biggest podcast our church has, has grown quite a bit. It's called 10 Minute Bible Talks, where we just do 10 minute little devotionals on a daily basis to help people while they drive to work or while they mow their lawn or work out on the treadmill, whatever it is they do. And we have a prayer podcast. We have things that are trying to meet people where they are. So if you're busy, then we can meet you in those digital platforms to try to help you grow in your faith. Are they the best? Well, I don't know. I'm not the kind of person who thinks that I'm going to allow the best be the enemy of the good. Uh, we're going to try all uh, options and see what helps people uh, so those are some ways we're trying to use digital platforms in order to disciple people. We need to get better at it. One of the things that we haven't quite conquered, we're close, but we haven't quite figured it out, is how do you do community uh, in digital platforms? And obviously, we all know community and relationships are really important. 
we've got to figure that piece out. And I don't know that anybody quite has it figured out yet. Keith, what's the name of your book again and where can people find it? Yeah, the book is called Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. And of course, you can get it on Amazon or any other places that you get books. And we have our podcast called Truth Over Tribe and 10-Minute Bible Talks that I mentioned. So I really appreciate you guys having me on. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Keith. Appreciate your good work, man. This is exciting and grateful for the book. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. Dr. Keithley, what's on your bookshelf right now? I am reading a book by John Webster called Christ Our Salvation. It's Expositions and Proclamations. It's a series of sermons that uh, Dr. Webster preached at Christ Church Chapel in Oxford. He was an Oxford Don. I think he's gone on to be with the Lord now. But it was a series of sermons he preached over the years uh, that are just really wonderful contemplations about what does it mean for us to be saved by Jesus Christ. He talks about uh, the means of salvation. He talks about the, the kind of God who saves. What are the virtues of salvation? What is the what is the purpose of salvation? And so each one of those headings, he has about five or six messages that he's preached. Um, they're they're uh, relatively brief. They're, they're sort of homilies. I've been reading them in the morning as my quiet time. Um, I find sometimes reading something like the typical devotional, like uh, Daily Bread, to be just a little too brief. I need, I need a little more than that. And so I find I, a lot of times I can't get through the whole message in a morning. Uh, maybe it takes me two days to cover it. But he writes, uh, it, it, it's just wonderful. I find it uh, nourishing to my soul. It reminds me of what Jesus has done for me. It tells me what salvation is all about. It encourages me to think about how is the fact that I am a saved person is supposed to be lived out in, in, in my day today. He, he channels John Owen a little more than I would, and, but, uh, uh, so, so it, it's truly Reformed when you read it, but I really do appreciate how he emphasizes God's sovereignty and God's grace and how it has real applications to our daily life. So it's called Christ Our Salvation by John Webster. What an excellent recommendation. Thank you, Dr. Keithley. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating, brief review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. You have no idea what that little small step will do to help us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. 